0: Good evening, depending upon where in the world you are, what time of the day you're listening to another episode of the Esk Podcasts. Today, I've got a great friend of mine um, with me. uh, Well, actually, not with me, but you understand what I'm saying. Uh, Roger Armstrong. Uh, Roger, morning, because I believe it's morning. Yeah, morning.
1: Morning, Paul. How are you?
0: Yeah, I'm I'm very good. Thank you. You and I had a very good conversation probably about a month ago now uh, on, on this podcast where... Uh, You did, you you asked the questions and I actually did most of the talking Um, Today I want to reverse that process um, Oh my god
1: (laughs) You're going to be Piers Morgan this time
0: I am, yeah I can hear people switching off as I'm saying this I'm only joking (laughs) Um, Because although you're active on Twitter and you're active on various WhatsApp groups uh, Which obviously only a limited number of people get to see Uh, I don't believe you've had a platform for a while now to express your views um, about Everton. And your views are always very direct. uh, And they come from a place that has an awful lot of passion. So before we get into where Everton is today and why we're where, where we are and what we need to do in order to get to a better place. Perhaps you can do what I did, which is explain why you're an Evertonian and why you have the passion that you do have.
1: Crikey. So no pressure there. Thank you, Paul. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think like um, very, very many of us, um, I owe uh, my uh, blue blood to to my old man um, who, who's still with us. Um, he's, what is he? He's 85 this year. He worked on the docks in Liverpool, and um, he was a blue uh, and is a blue rather. Um, and, and he's quite a grumpy blue, so I've got that from him as well. Um, back in the day, you know, he tells stories about going to watch Everton home and away, and in fact, going to watch the Reds as well. You know, that he did that routine of Anfield one Saturday and and, and Goodison the next if unless Everton were, were playing locally in Lancashire, because obviously we work until midday and he, he would go to the away games if he could and, and, and go with his mates and have an absolute ball um and and he's always you know Everton has been something that defined him and was passed down from from father to son i've managed to do that with uh two of my three sons the eldest is is still a chelsea fan just because he's a bit of a glory hunter uh rory's a blue came to the idea late but glen is a uh, is a lifelong blue and uh, he and i have had many many happy times at Goodison and and some of the best times and some of the best memories of your life is when you're there with your own dad and your own son. So um, yeah, it's a family tradition. Um, it's an identity, but but the club stands for stands for something. And and you know it stands for yeah whether it's NSNO or or, or or you know if you know your history. But it stands for for me. It stands for competing and trying to compete and respect and quality and passion. Um, and so much of that appears to have gone by the wayside nowadays. Um, the more money we have, the less we seem to cling on to those values. Um, and we're kind of everyone's favourite second club, maybe. Um, but I don't think we're a threat to anyone. Um, and it's really quite disappointing you know, I've done quite a lot on social media over the last 10 years, Twitter especially. Um, started, you know, done plenty of podcasts with you and John and Everton Business Matters and started my own and kind of just put that in, in quarantine, really, during the pandemic because I couldn't really see the point of it. But I think a lot of people have kept a lot of people entertained by doing that material, you and many others. And I think that's great. And I will start up um, the blue half again for the new season. Um but Everton, for me, is, is is something that should give you a sense of pride, and and uh, a sense of belonging. Uh, and actually, right now, it
0: just pisses me off. You, you said a very interesting thing actually in in the podcast that you and I did, or the last podcast that you and I did. And you you said, I think this is the the absolute words you, you said were it was an um, extension of your own identity. Yeah. That. Uh, what happens at Everton actually affects you. And not only from the point of view of, you know, being grumpy on a Saturday night or whatever day that we played football um, and didn't play well. It actually goes much deeper than that, doesn't it?
1: Look, of course it does. And you can see that. You can see that from the people that you, that you meet, the friends that you have, the people that you don't even know but you interact with. You know, what goes on in an empty field in Blackpool on a Saturday afternoon really, really got to an awful lot of people. Um, and and it, it's interesting how um, many lives are affected by the actions of 11, 15, 20 people on a football field. And I'm not saying Everton is any different because I think that's what we think, you know, are, that we think we love our club more than Fulham fans do, or more than, um, I I don't know, Aston Villa fans do, or or, um, more than Crystal Palace fans do. Um, But that sense of identity that football in Britain gives to its fans is, I wouldn't say unique, because clearly Italy, Germany, and, and Spain, those clubs, there's a real passion for the game too. But there's something about a football club, but when you get it and and it's not just Everton that people can get, it gets inside your your soul and and um it has a real effect on your mood and on
0: your uh, your outlook. That's um <clears throat> that's quite unfortunate at this moment in time. Isn't it's it? very, very unfortunate. <laughs> yeah. At a at a time when all the things that uh, always used to be certainties in life um Perhaps are no longer quite as certain as they used to be. Without getting too philosophical, um, then our football club comes along and gives us another whack on top of the head.
1: Yeah, I mean, City used to be a laughing stock, didn't they? You know, uh, Manchester City used to be the team that could snatch defeat from the jaws of victory yeah, sure. like, like no other, um, and that could find a disaster on a sunny day uh, and find a brilliant way to lose something or get within touching distance of glory and and fail. Or the Scottish rugby team would always do that, which used to amuse me and still does. But, you know, Everton have taken that to new levels. And and just when you think, just when you think
0: we're entering some calmer water, um, somebody throws a great big rock into the pool. (laughs) You um, Professionally, your background is, is, is marketing. So I think this would be an interesting point to start. Uh, the examination of, of Everton, uh, th- there has been some talk and I, I've talked about it and, and uh, wrote about it uh, of some form of rebranding exercise Yeah. and, and one of the points I made about uh, rebranding is that before you go to where you want to go or where you think you want to go in terms of brand, you have to be able to identify where you are currently in order to make that, that move to, to somewhere else or to become something else, which where do you think we are currently uh, as a club? What, 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 it, what is our identity? What, what does the club think are, is our identity? And then from that, you know, what does everybody else think? Because I suspect there's quite a gap between the two.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. Let me just, let me just pick you up on something you said that, uh, about, about marketing and about one other thing. So if, if, if somebody meets me for the first time I think within five minutes, they'd know I was an Everton fan. And probably within 10, they'd know that I am a linguist, that I studied Spanish and speak Spanish fluently, I would like to think. Um, and 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 from a career perspective, I've never really had much of a chance to use those languages. And most of my career, as you say, has been in marketing, marketing and sales. Um, so revenue generation, commercial, Uh, growth and, yes, branding. You know, I've developed brands, I've built brands, I've built businesses. Um, And before you embark on any journey, whether that's in life or whether that's in business, you need to know where the hell you're starting from. So I worry deeply about... I mean, I'm also a traditionalist, which a lot of people who know me would think, what on earth is he talking about? You know, because I'm a (laughs) rebel and I'm gobby and, you know, I'm all up for change and and, and shaking the status quo but I'm a traditionalist and by that I mean I admire Real Madrid, I admire Glasgow Celtic, I admire Manchester United, I admire Juventus, I admire these entities that uh, have built a tradition and have an identity and we're a football club established in 1878 with a wonderful history which we like to talk about and sing about which doesn't give you any points at the start of the season and doesn't give you any guarantees but why on earth we're embarking on a rebranding now, beggars belief to me, Paul, because we've got a perfectly decent brand. We've just kind of ruined it in the last 10 years, I would argue, by by presenting ourselves as, you know, the I mean, the ultimate vanity, the, the ultimate self-indulgence is to suggest that football is at the service of humanity. And I mean, I don't think I've read it, it, in the last 10 years anything more vaingloriously meaningless than that and if truly that's what the chief executive of our football club thinks then my word um it, it it makes no sense to me um so so I think we've lost our identity in the last 10 years um you could argue that we might have lost it in the last 25 in, in the Kenwright era but I do think that Moyes kept it alive for a period Um, And I think that um, really, since he left, ironically, since he left, um, the identity's gone. We haven't got an identity under David Moyes and under Joe Royal. You know, Dogs of War and the like. God knows what we were under Walter Smith, but let's gloss over that. (laughs) Um, but, But Moyes, like him or loathe him, seven, eight years, you know, those times... And that raging injustice which Everton thrive on. I mean, Everton really, really thrive on raging injustice. The goal away to Villarreal that wasn't given, you know, is as significant as the disallowed goal by Clive Thomas in the 70s, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. so these are moments in our history. Or oh, the handball by Alan Hansen at Wembley. You know, the blatant handball by Hansen in that game that, that, that would have given us a penalty. Um, you know... We had that identity under Moyes. And we almost had it. Almost had an identity under Martinez. But you know, we, we just couldn't convert one of those two semifinals. I'm absolutely convinced. Absolutely convinced. I was at both semis against City in the League Cup. Um, you know, we were three one up on aggregate there. And if that Raheem Sterling cross, which was what, a yard out that he pulled it back from,
0: if I'm that
1: if that, if that goal had been disallowed and we'd have got to Wembley, it would have been Liverpool, wouldn't it? Would yep. it have been Liverpool in the final? I think it would. Um, I think we'd have won that trophy and Martinez would probably still be the manager. There you go. Uh, and the semi-final where where we lost to United, Martial, in, um, uh, when was that, 2016?
0: Right? Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. You know, we, we almost got there with Martinez. We've been nowhere near it under under anyone since and and I, I don't know Paul you know w- we seem to want to talk about the past and, and, and it's just meaningless it's absolutely meaningless I mean I, I laugh at Huddersfield Town because they've got two stars on their badge you know and <laughs> you could because c- apparently they won the league twice or three times or whatever it is you know they, they won the league
0: three times on the run yeah in nineteen twenties four four, five, six, something like that.
1: Yeah, so 100
0: years ago. Yeah. You know, and
1: we can laugh at Forrest and Villa for having a star on because they've won the European Cup, but I, I just don't... If one club hasn't taken advantage of Sky, the Sky era, 1992, onwards, it's Everton. You know, if one club has suffered under Sky... Under the satellite television global broadcasting revolution, it's Everton,
0: and and why the hell is that? Well, it, it, that's an interesting point because I I was I've tried been trying to do some analysis for a, a later article or a series of articles on on the Premier League years, and I know football is not just about the Premier League, but it was a, a watershed moment when the Premier League was created, and you're quite right that some clubs have taken enormous advantage of it. One of the really interesting things I noticed was, so the six clubs that have never been out of the Premier League, of which Everton is one, obviously Manchester City spent some time out of the Premier League. Of those six clubs, five have appeared in Champions League finals. (laughs) Yes, yes. Yes. Manchester United, um, Liverpool,
1: obviously Tottenham,
0: Arsenal and Chelsea. We haven't even qualified for the Champions League. And yet the the five clubs that have enjoyed exactly the same financial circumstances as we have, exactly the same platform from which to grow a global business, have appeared in finals. And uh, three of those five have have won the Champions League.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would say, and this is a bit of a personal (laughs) Uh, this this may be coming from a, from a personal angle. I can remember um, going back. I mean, I I grew up on Wirral, so you know, they'd call me a woolly back or whatever. And and even when I went to school, I never I never had an accent. And people who know me would, you know, th- this is just how I talk. It's not. It's just the way it is. And so, yeah. um, so when people meet me and say, "Well, why are you an Everton fan?" Well, you know, from there. Well, really, you don't sound like it um and and one of my one of my memories of my my adolescence is going back home in the christmas holidays from university and going down the local christmas eve and it was my round and the guy wouldn't serve me and he told he told me to fuck off because i was a cockney bastard and it was christmas eve in my local that was literally 200 yards from where i live um and, and that had a lasting impression on me, because I didn't talk like the other people in the pub. And therefore, for some reason, I wasn't welcome, and I thought that was quite pitiful, really. And and I would draw that to Everton, uh, to an extent, and Everton's parochial nature, and compare it to Liverpool and its desire to reach out globally. And we take you know, the rise out of them for Oslo flights and season ticket holders from Norway and, and be in the tourist club and song sheets and all of that. And the same with Manchester United, um, who have fans traveling from all over the country and, and, and not as many from Manchester and city kind of play that game against them that we try and play against Liverpool City's all ours and the like. But I really think that deep rooted insularity verging on xenophobia, many people won't agree with this. Um, is at the heart of our problem. Um, And, and, um, you know, it it means that we don't look, this came across with the the planning permission and the application and the consultation process about the Liverpool City region. And it was so narrow, so um, one dimensional. And I know from talking to the likes of you know, Tony in Chicago and talking to a lot of the Irish toffees and, and, and others and the guys who do the American Toffee podcast. You know how proud uh, people are from who come from outside of the city and sometimes have no direct affiliation to the club or the city or any historical family connection. And, and I don't think we do enough to welcome them or to attract those people. And so, you know, if a kid from the Wirral sometimes feels unwelcome in and around the club or in and around uh, you know that that sort of environment that they create. You know why is anyone uh, from further afield going to be attracted by a middling Premier League club?
0: Yeah, and the response in recent years has just been to throw money at people in order to get them to uh, over the line, as we as, as we were talking about on, uh, on, yeah. on, on on social media. So it's hardly surprising that. Uh, when it doesn't go right, that the people that have ultimately have only been attracted by the money, you, you find that most of those people are the wrong type of people uh, and not the type of people that will see you through times that are more difficult than they thought were, that they were going to be?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I do not doubt for one second that Denise's heart is in the right place. And I do not doubt that she is trying To show some leadership in an organization which has a massive leadership vacuum. Um, I just don't think she has the skills to do that. I think she could be and is an asset to the business, to the club, to the company, but I do not think she can lead a football club. that needs to compete or wishes to compete, apparently, at the top table with United and City and Chelsea and Arsenal and Tottenham and, God forbid, Leicester and Wolves and West Ham and Crystal Palace. Um, I just don't think she has the commercial nous and the strategic vision to do that. And, and, and I'm telling you 100% that Bill Kenwright doesn't have it. And I'm also certain that Farhad Mashiri doesn't has, have it he just has a bag of cash. So we are a leadership and a commercial vacuum. And to go back to the question that you asked me 10 minutes ago, I've got no idea what they think the football club stands for, uh, other than what I fear is a narrow, um, slightly uh, parochial and um, unambitious Local entity, proud of its past, and scared to death of its future.
0: Yeah, I think one—the one thing that you didn't mention—and and that, that's that's all excellent and very good—is uh, focus. I uh, maybe analysing it too much, but I read that recent—you know—the recent correspondence from um, Denise Barrett Baxendale, and it—it it, it is so unfocused. Mhm I mean you know it's a list of um it's just a list of minor minor achievements you know thanks thanks for being great over the period <laughs> you know that we have just been through thanks for buying more shirts than we've ever um, uh, sold before etc cetera, etc cetera. I think I said it, uh, on the podcast at the weekend there was 33 words out of 1300 words were actually about the first team Mhm um and it was just so unfocused, and then I go and look at um, so at the end of every year, Manchester city's chairman, um, al Mubarak, always does this sort of like a, a half half hour interview with with the, with the, the internal channel, and you listen and you know, he, I, there are many reasons not to admire that man because of you know where he comes from and, and the various associations with that, but you listen to him for half an hour and he talks about it. The business and he talks about the football club with such clarity and such uh, common sense approach to you know the issues as they see them This talks about the strategies of having a global football group and how the success is not only the, uh, with Manchester City but how the Melbourne club came second in their league and yes you can say well that's clearly the reason why that happens is because they've thrown a lot of money at it, and yes, they have thrown a lot of money at things. But it actually, happens because they have they have a, a philosophy within within the group, all about excellence, all about achieving success, and they strip it down to just that's what we're going to do, and therefore, what do we need to do in order to achieve it? And you see it in every part of their business, you know, around the world, New York, uh, Tokyo. Um, and then they talk about their plans, you know, we're going to buy a, a French uh, second division club and they're going to do exactly the same thing You know, w- with, with that club, whichever club they buy. And for me, uh, somebody who's seen that uh, in my day-to-day business, mm. or day-to-day life, uh, you know, seeing people operate like that, I just have a desperate longing for somebody to be able to do the same with Everton not as, a, as 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 a global football group because you know we are so far away from that it's not going to happen but somebody who just says you know why, why why what are we here for well we're here ultimately to win football tournaments that's that's what we do um okay so what do we need to do in order to achieve that and that for me is what needs to happen they need to recognize that that's what football clubs do. They aim to win football tournaments, yeah. Regular football tournaments, three or four a year. What do we need to do to get to there?
1: Yeah, um, I mean, I think not everyone can win, and um, you know, one team <clears> wins <throat> the Premier League, one team's win the win, one team wins the Champions League, um, and that's it. So, you know, winners this year. Football clubs that have succeeded are obviously Liverpool, Bayern Munich, Real Madrid, Juventus, um, PSG. Um, arguably, Manchester City have not had a successful season. Um, Tottenham certainly uh, didn't have a very successful season, um, and, and you could argue about Leicester. But it's about competing more than winning. I, I'll I'll get to competing first, Paul, okay. uh, because if we compete, then then you know, we might win. I mean, our record against Liverpool is truly embarrassing. Our record away to the bigger clubs is, is an insult to the fans who turn up. And I've been there many, many times, Tottenham, Chelsea, Arsenal, um, and seen us lose and seen us not even turn up. Um, so it's an embarrassment. The club's on-pitch performances have been an embarrassment for 10 years or more. Um, and... and you don't get any sense of that you don't get any sense of contrition from the club um they have this desire to use completely and i'm a bit of a wordsmith and that annoys a lot of people but it keeps me occupied um and and, and i the club has this desire to use what i see as unnecessary adjectives all the time and if you read the player profiles i mean when you read hopefully it's gone down now but jibril Sadibi's profile on the website last year this guy was carlos alberto you know <laughs> and and you know whatever may or may not happen and probably will come on to transfers but you know alan myers and god bless alan he tries really hard and he's a lovely guy with his with 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 you know his heart in the right place and i may sound patronizing i don't mean it in that way at all but even he falls foul of it because he says that Everton are planning to make an audacious bid for James Rodriguez, James Rodriguez. You know, I mean, why do we need to say audacious? I mean, what, what does that actually mean? Is that just recognising that we're pitiful and we're aspiring to something better? I, I don't understand it, you know. And, and when we talk about the stadium, it's got to be iconic. And when we talk about the awards, it's at the prestigious St. George's Hall. For goodness sake, we know these things. It, there seems to be a deep seated level of insecurity at the top, which comes across in the language that we use. It comes back to brand. Why are we rebranding? I do not know. We have a brand. It's called Everton, Everton Football Club. We've tinkered with the crest. We've tinkered with, you know, shirts, shirt sponsors, partnerships and strap lines, If you know your history, NSNO, the originals, whatever. Um, but the brand is Everton. That's it. And, and what we want to tinker, what do we want to tinker with that for? Makes no sense to me.
0: Well, I think the, um, the only way it makes sense would be to go, to, go back, you know, to go back to our roots, to establish the fact that all of these sort of ancillary statements, you know, we go with the game, um, uh, you know, and some of the ones that you mentioned, actually aren't working. They aren't working because... We're not, um, how do I put it, we're not growing. And no, we're not. And the current, the current one, Paul, of more than 11
1: is, is, is just a joke because, you know, if you saw those 11 men in the first half at Bloomfield Road, in, albeit in a pre-season friendly, or you saw the 11 men who rocked up at Stamford Bridge prior to lockdown, um, you, you saw the 11 men that started the game at home to Bournemouth on the final day of the season. They weren't more than 11. <laughs> they, they were about two, if that. So, so we absolutely are not more than 11. We take 11 strangers, throw them onto a football field, and we manage to make the team be smaller than the sum of the parts. That's what's happened under Machiri. We, You know, we have never, ever had a team. We've never had a sense of team spirit. I was watching the other day this great, I mean, Paul Merson, love him or hate him, um, he was doing an interview for an hour, with maybe slightly more than an hour, with Tony Adams, a player I've got a tremendous amount of respect for as a professional and then as a person overcoming alcoholism and addiction. And, and, and um. Adams comes across so well in that documentary, and he talks about his early life, his childhood, his relationship with his dad, why he went to Arsenal, how he got the captain's armband, working under George Graham, how they played, how the team bonded, what they did off the pitch, how it all changed when Wenger came in. You know, picking the bones out of the good bits of Graham and the, the good bits of Wenger and combining them and the players that he admired. And they're tremendous. It, it was really, really interesting listen and watch. And, and I was reflecting on it and I thought, when was the last player, the last time that Everton had a player like that who you could sit down and could talk about his 15, 20 year career with the football club in such, yes, of course, he won plenty of trophies, but could talk about it so coherently and so logically and led the club for, you know, 10 plus years. We haven't had one of those since Neville, maybe, since, I don't know, Dave Watson, perhaps, Tim Cahill. We just, we haven't got one. We haven't got a single, there is not a single player on our books that could lead that group. Not a single player. So how do we, how do we possibly grow and develop and
0: compete without any leadership at all on the pitch? Yeah, absolutely. Tony Adams to me uh, epitomizes um, passion. Yep. Right. So uh, clearly a very intense character. Yeah. As people are, you know, many people are who have, um, you know, addiction problems. They, yep. they, they they tend to be very intense people. Um, but he had an absolute passion for for the game that he played. Yeah. Clearly, you know, and gave his all despite all of his horrendous problems off the pitch. Gave his all the moment he, he he crossed crossed the line. And and today there's a guy who has saved countless thousands of lives through his his charity work, Um, which he did of his own accord. used used the money that he raised in 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 his own testimonial to set up a a clinic for sports people who were suffering the types of problems that he'd suffered. Um, And I I don't know if I I haven't seen the program that you're referring to, and I don't know if it, it was included in it. But one of the reasons why he did it. Was he looked? He he spoke to the British Olympic Association and asked them, "What did they do to help people, athletes, who had been found guilty of um, you know drug drug charges?" Right. And the answer that came back was, "Well, we don't do anything. They just serve their time. You know, if it's a two-year ban, they serve the two-year ban, and then if they want, they come back. They come back to to the sport." And it was that point when he realised that actually there was no help for for any of these people. So he set it up. Yeah. Um, and and it, and it's tremendous what he what he what he does. There is another um statistic that uh in the last I think this was in Jan, from January, so the previous twelve months, six hundred and forty three, I think the figure was, uh, professional footballers had had approached him with regards to uh, gambling or another form of addictive um yeah you know Behavior. personality. Yeah. So absolutely tremendous. So he had this enormous passion. I, I think Phil. I think Phil Neville probably is the last real passionate footballer that we've had on the pitch. Uh, Richarlison is a very passionate footballer. Um, whether he will develop into becoming a a leader or not, uh, I don't know. But he's the one that immediately springs to mind in terms of passion. But beyond that, you have to look really hard. Yeah, I mean, I think people can
1: get... I mean, Adams talks about people who are over the top with passion. Yeah. Um, and, and he was trying to take the best of a... You know, Terry Butcher, he says, was over the top, you know, punching holes in the wall and whatever before the game. <laughs> um, and he would try and take a bit, of, uh, a bit of David O'Leary. And he says, oh, David O'Leary never made a tackle in his life. He just shepherded people out for a throw-in, you know?
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so a bit of David O'Leary a bit of Mad Willie Young, um, a bit of Alvin Martin, which I thought was an interesting one, um, a bit of Terry Butcher, um, and, and, and tried to you know, take the best from all of the people that he, that he came across. And sometimes we can get passion. You know, Passion goes too far because you look at somebody like Jordan Pickford, who displays an awful lot of passion and screaming and shouting and yelling during the game, most of it directed, in, directed wrongly. Um, and doesn't result in you know performances of quality so um it, it, it's often the case that a leader um, isn't always the most passionate and the most vocal but
0: they're able to lead you know absolutely I mean you know, quiet leadership is um isn't that the name of uh that's what Android Carlo is? that's
1: what Carlo's all about yeah
0: yeah exactly um and and passion I think Interestingly, passion can uh demonstrate can either demonstrate strength or it can demonstrate weakness. Um and I, I suspect without being too unfair to him, you know, our, our beloved goalkeeper, his passion is an expression of uh of of, of in a sense of his weaknesses. Mm-hmm. It, 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 his passion is not doesn't, from my point of view, um, demonstrate strength. Whereas clearly, you know, somebody like Tony Adams in his day it was very evident that his passion was, you know, an expression of his strength as 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 a, as a footballer. Yeah. Um, but that's that's something that's been lacking across the club for forever and a day. Um,
1: yeah, but let me, let me let me bring another word in though. Yeah. Passion is one thing. We talk about leadership and brand and where are we going, right? But I think it comes down to respect. Okay. So Alex Ferguson had the respect of every single footballer who came to play for Manchester United. He gained it initially before he won things. And once he'd won it, his reputation went before him. Zinedine Zidane has everyone's respect. And if Zinedine Zidane doesn't like Gareth Bale, well, that's Gareth Bale's loss. Arguably, it's James Rodriguez's loss. Maybe our gain, that's debatable. Pep has got everyone's respect. Arteta appears appears already to have got the respect, or is assembling a group of players around him who respect him. Um, Jose, mm, he either gets your respect or you hate him. But successful managers are respected, and successful clubs have respected people in charge. Klopp is respected, hundred percent respected. He says jump, they say how high. Now. We haven't had a manager who the players have respected until Carlo, and I still think there are players who don't respect Carlo because they're paid too much and they don't really care. Um, they don't—they're not showing much respect in their performances. Um, and you've got to—you know—he sits there, a man with a track record to die for, three Champions Leagues with different clubs and league titles all over, um, earning nine million pounds a year. Managing arguably an irrelevant Premier League football club, and you have to think why. You have to think why is he doing that? Does he genuinely believe he can take us somewhere, or is he just rubbing his hands with glee at somebody offering him nine million
0: pound a year for five years? It's, 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 it's a really interesting question. Just, just go, and I'll come back to it in a second. But just on, on the issue of respect, um, you're absolutely right. And the last game before we, uh, we went into lockdown was the 4-0 defeat at, um, at Chelsea. Yeah. It was the first time that Angelotti had taken an English team back to Stamford Bridge since he'd left, obviously. Yep. Wouldn't, wouldn't you think that somebody in the dressing room or somebody at Finch Farm during the week would have got the group of players who were likely to play together and say, we're not letting this guy down. He's going back to a ground where he you know, was, was absolutely loved. You know, I'd I, I lived in Chelsea at the time and all my Chelsea uh, supporting friends absolutely adored the man. We are not going to let this guy down. We are going to go out there and we're going to show show the world that what what it means to us as players to have a man like him on the bench yeah you would have thought so that, that, you would, have that, thought that, so. that would have been you know if, 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 like, if i'm Seamus Coleman Col- 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 for a few minutes that would have been my speech mm, mm. you know we even if we don't have self-pride we we have to have pride in in the guy that and recognize his achievements and recognize where where he's going back to um, and obviously, we never did that. I mean, it was, you know, an absolutely abhorrent um, uh, performance. But the question as to why. So why why is Angelotti at Everton? is is a very good one, and it it's it actually causes a lot of uh, without people realizing the actual question. It actually causes a lot of debate already on social media because we're in this situation at the moment where, and, and we're in this situation every every transfer window. Well, because we're because the team is not complete, because the team is not competitive, we're always looking to make the changes that are suddenly going to you know with the click of a finger make us competitive once more. Yeah, and um, I I mean I, I always take the view that we, we can't do a lot of a lot of a lot of the things that the press say that we're about to do um, just because of uh, you know the, the way I study the finances and stuff. And I find that, and, I, and I'm, I'm interested at this moment in time with the talk about Rodriguez coming. Yeah. <laughs> Is this uh, Carlo Angelotti stamping his authority on the club by saying, he's the player that I want? And it goes against what Marcel Brands has talked about. It goes, it goes against what we think we know about the finances of the club. What's, what, what's your view on that? Wow! look, it's a story which,
1: like a sort of squall in the Atlantic, it bubbles up very quickly and and, and can dissipate and it comes out of nowhere. Um, Personally, James Rodriguez is a massive underachiever, isn't he? I think he had a great World Cup whenever it was, was snapped up by Real Madrid for a large sum of money. It didn't really work out. And he's been unsuccessful, loaned out unsuccessfully loaned out to other clubs since then. I think he's made twenty odd appearances in the last two years, or something like that. Struggles with fitness. Don't know. Twenty nine years old. Hmm. Um. So I do think, however, that without. It being a marquee signing, I think Ancelotti needs to make an Ancelotti signing. If that doesn't sound too fatuous, which is... Extend on that, on that, because that's an interesting... It's the person that he wants. And, And it's going to be a name who wouldn't look at Everton without Ancelotti being in charge. I'm not actually sure that that player is Alan because most of us hadn't really heard of Alan much. Um, six months ago, 12 months ago, um, 29-year-old midfielder playing for Napoli, hardly set the world on fire, really. Don't know how many caps has he got? I, I, I He wasn't a player on my radar. Um, so I'm not sure Alan is that signing. But if Carlo is as smart as we believe him to be. The only chance of success for Everton Football Club during his tenure is a cup competition, a domestic cup competition for now. Um, and, and, and maybe he needs that Rodriguez signing to convince him that actually he will get the backing that he needs. And if he says, I want Rodriguez or I want, Gareth Bale or I want Luis Suarez I want Dybala or Dries Mertens or whoever it is within the financial scope of Everton then we back him and maybe he's thrown the gauntlet down to Mashiri. I mean these Daily Star stories believe them or don't believe them Mm. I know that everyone will tell me that, yes, he's always worked with the director of football and you don't understand about directors of football and they need five years and they need this and they need the other. But if we sign James Rodriguez and Alan, we may as well show Brands the door because there is no point in having him if we're signing those two kind of players. And I'm not saying we shouldn't sign them, but, you know, we had a plan. We had a director of football plan. And of course, you sign a blend of players and even even Brands signed Delph mm. That went well. Um, but but I think Carlo needs to stamp his authority here. And I think he needs coming back finally to the Merce and um, Tony Adams piece. They were both called son of George. Yeah. And I think he needs someone in that squad who is son of Carlo. I know that David is there, but he needs a representative on the pitch. And the one thing that I do not, Paul, understand about Carlo Ancelotti is why on earth he makes Gylfi Sigurdsson the captain. I I cannot comprehend that. And if he does it, if he keeps doing it, you know, I'm going to just keep questioning him (laughs) because that makes no sense. I've never seen a man less capable of leading himself out of the changing room, let alone um, 10 other teammates.
0: Look, it's a difficult one to justify um, I'll go back to my quiet leadership um, Comment from from earlier Maybe mm. maybe, maybe, that, maybe that's what he sees in, in Sigurdsson um, I, I, But that's the only justification I, I, I could give for it um,
1: I just think he's playing him So that somebody might come along and buy him Or might make an inquiry Because he can't have a future I mean, he can't have a future in a starting eleven. If if it's Allen and Decoore, if we are going to get those two, um, and even if we only get one of them, I, I don't see how Gilfie fits into a team. I mean, Gomez will be picked ahead of Gilfie, and then Allen will play with Gomez. And if we're going to play a three, then, you know, long-term, is it Gabamin that comes in, is Anthony Gordon? Um, or if we're playing with a 4-4-2, Carlos preferred... Uh, formation, then you're going to expect Theo Walcott or someone on the right and maybe Gordon on the left. and Tom Davis as a backup, Gabamin coming in. I don't see how Sigurdsson fits into a starting 11, but he, he's, he just keeps
0: turning up. Well, I mean, Sigurdsson is sort of Everton's problems personified, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's expensive. He's too expensive to shift off to somebody else. Yeah. Um, because you know there are half a dozen players at Everton that are earning career high salaries yeah. that, that will not get you know wherever they go next um, they will not get the same level of salaries that they're currently getting and Sigurdsson obviously fits into into that as as much as the, the difficulty is how much we paid for him and obviously the effect that it still has on on, on the accounts so I can't I can I. The big logjam we've got is getting rid of those types of players, getting rid of the players that we have bought, we wrongly bought, who are too expensive to be shifted elsewhere. And until until somebody sorts that issue out, and, I, and that you know, brands, I know you're not a huge fan of brands, but brands has demonstrated in the past an ability to trade players successfully. Perhaps he's never had a, a problem or an issue of this magnitude as, he, as he's got now. And perhaps there isn't actually a solution when players are on such fantastic contracts yeah. that they're never going to move anywhere else. But until those con- either, either until we find a way of actually shifting those players on or until those players' contracts have expired, we, re- we really have an issue, an issue about bringing um, players in and particularly... Uh, to use your phrase, you know uh, an angelotti type s- signing one that mm-hmm. one one that you know a signature signing um, of his, so he creates an identity I, and I get the point that he has to create an identity of his own on this team, the team that he inherited yeah. i I think that's the I, that fundamentally is the real issue. We have this legacy of players who Either aren't playing well enough or don't fit the style of play of the manager, but are so are, are so expensive to keep that nobody else will take them.
1: Yeah, something just came to mind when you were talking there about you know brands and yeah okay I'm critical of some of his signings and critical of, of, of his inability to move people on, and some of those are Mission Impossible Sigurdsson, Walcott, Tosin, even wages they're on very difficult to find buyers for. Yeah, yeah. um but but you know let's look at the context of this stadium that we're meant to be building and if brand's hands are tied until we have cleared the dead wood which we've been talking about for a long time we've got more dead wood than sherwood forest um why even bring him in and when it comes to the stadium It's like hiring a world-class project manager and paying him for two or three years before you've even got planning permission. I don't see the point. If the argument is that Brands can't do his job because he can't get rid of the Deadwood, then why have Brands in the first place? Do you take my point? I I, I do take your point. Um, Because he's not doing it... Yeah, okay, Brandthwaite. But as we know darling David Unsworth still has a pretty much free reign with the under 23s. You know, there was more written about the under 23s in Denise's article than there was about the first team. So, so Brands isn't doing it with the under 23s. And to be fair to Brands and where I'd be critical of Brands, he's not flogging Kenny. He's not flogging Davis. He's not flogging Ellis Sims. He's not flogging any of those assets, which are all profit like an Ainsley Maitland Niles is for Arsenal. So, What the hell is he doing? If he doesn't want to sell those kids because they've got talent, then why aren't they coming through into the first team? And why aren't they being developed and groomed for that? Well, because they're not playing in the style of football the first team want because Brands isn't running the academy. So he's not selling the kids, and he can't sell the expensive players. Therefore, he can't buy anyone. And the only people he buys, you know, he takes a big punt on Moyes Keane, um, takes a ludicrous punt on Fabian Delph. Um, you know where where are the hits? Where where are the hits? And don't tell me Richarlison because Richarlison only came because of Silver. So yep. either either brands can't do his job because of the circumstances. In which case, why have we got him? And if he can't start this five year project until we've got rid of the deadwood, then why have
0: we got him? Well, here's, here's a thought, and you mentioned the stadium. One of the things that not a lot of people are talking about, in fact, I don't think anybody's spoken about it, is that assuming that the stadium goes ahead, and I'm, I'm still, uh, I still have a chunk of reservation about whether it will go ahead given the economic s- situation that we find ourselves in. Yeah. But let's assume for a moment that it does go ahead. What people don't realise is that the, the lenders, whoever the lenders may be, Are going to put conditions upon how the club performs financially in the future, and that, and that means a a restriction on uh, who and what we can buy, and what we can pay, and how much we can pay them in terms of wages. That that that's the inevitable consequence of borrowing, you know, sort of three hundred, three hundred and fifty million pound. Arsenal Arsenal had that problem
1: absolutely uh,
0: for years after. the Emirates Stadium was was built, but they had, you know, a, a genius at the time in term in terms of manager. Who actually, right. you know, the, the lenders said there are no circumstances under which he can leave the club; he has to stay at the club. Yep. Um, and obviously he, he he did for that extended period. May it not be the or might it not be the case that uh, Brands is part of the package in terms of. What we're presenting to would-be lenders, so you know this is not this is not an organisation with, with, without discipline. Because if you if you look at it, you know if I'm a potential lender or a potential investor, if I look at Everton's accounts, one of the first things I'll say is you have no financial discipline at all. Mm-hmm. Like you you promise that you're going to you know do this that and the other, but at the end of every window, somebody panics and we get a couple of crazy purchases. Um, and that's happened time and time again. It even happened in the um, in in the winter window uh, in two thousand and eighteen. Perhaps we're saying, well, actually, we do have that discipline because we have Marcel Brands, and we know that we can't do what we've done in the past. Yeah, but under Marcel we signed Alex Iwobi, for goodness sake. <laughs> yeah.
1: Explain that one to me. I mean, that was as mad as signing Theo Walcott and Tosin yeah. to keep Sam Allardyce in,
0: in, in a job. Absolutely, uh, but that, that, was, that, was a, that, was, that was evidence of the system not working. So yeah. you're, you, you're going to a lender and you're saying, yeah, I understand that. And actually, you know, I'm the director of football, but it actually wasn't me because it was the, the boss, the owner, mm. who, who did that. Because he's great mates with it, with his agent, um, so there has to you know, clearly there has to be more discipline in, the, in in the future. So that's that's an even uh, that's another layer of restriction placed upon us. Oh, Thank it you. is. I mean, and
1: Arsenal, but you see, at least Arsenal's stadium had a sixty thousand capacity, and uh, a chunk of premium corporate seating which they were able to charge a fortune for still had a waiting list for Diamond Club or whatever it was. And um, their business model was really, really dependent upon full sales for every game, which wasn't always reflected in um, buttocks on every seat. But the tickets have been sold uh, either season-wide or or just not utilised for for, for that particular fixture and um, group stage qualification for the Champions League. Which was essential, and so they always managed, even, you know, having to interfere in the lasagna for Tottenham. They managed to get into fourth, didn't they? Yes, uh, sure. on, on the final day of the season. So, so how on earth we are going to uh, compete and rebuild a squad? Imagine it. Imagine if we don't sign anyone, right? Imagine you're right, and there is no money, and we sign nobody this season. And we mess about in anywhere between 8th and 14th. Sigurdsson plays 30 games, scores five goals. Uh, Iwobi, you know, plays 30 games, scores three or four goals. And we get through to the end of the season. And um, we're, you know, decent cup run, whatever that even means, right? Bramley-Moore COVID, vaccines all done. Bramley-Moore planning permission is granted, um richarlison wants to go because he clearly will uh, and we cash in the chips on him 100 million 120 million um we've got debt to finance how on earth are we going to go out without breaching every covenant that the lenders have and and spend that 120 million on four five six players you know it's just it's just not possible um and that's why we've got to develop our own talents and that's why i would i still shake my head that brands isn't more hands on with unsworth and his and his um and his
0: kids absolutely um i i think where where we end up going to this conversation is um, brands has to be given the authority to do his job so his job is Obviously transfer related But it's also structurally In terms of getting the academy To become a feeder For um, the first team Or if not a feeder for the first team A source of profit That we can reinvest back into the Absolutely. first team Absolutely So he has to be given the authority To do that If he hasn't already got it Because it seems the evidence suggests That he hasn't got that authority um, And then he can make the changes With the under 23 team Including the coach That's necessary to bring everything into line, into into order, so there's a system that works. And then Angelotti, Angelotti said an interesting thing, didn't he, in in the summer, such as it was, that uh, about improvement. So evolution and improvement. His job was to improve, and maybe actually, although there's absolutely no evidence of it yet. And there was no evidence of it, certainly on Saturday. Um, maybe actually that that's really what his role is. And it, it's a very different role from what you might expect and what you might have seen from him in the past. But his role is to bring his experience, his experience of fantastic footballers winning football teams and improve <clears throat> what we have rather yeah. than spending and find a
1: style of play and find a style of play that suits whether that be three at the back whether it be four three three uh whether it be four -hmm. two three one whatever the formation based on the players who are there for keeps the likes of dcl the likes of holgate um maybe maybe tom davis but maybe not uh, anthony gordon you know that you're building a team around these players and you find a formation that suits them gomez probably also um and, and and yeah, Carlo should be able to do that because for nine million quid a year, he shouldn't just be playing fantasy football in the transfer market. We don't need another checkbook manager, but he does need to get be able to bring in one or two players that will facilitate and help develop the relatively poorly performing players we've got in the squad so far, who we can't shift. You know, whether that be Yannick Balassi or or, or um, you know, whether that be um, making Michael Keane. To be more more vocal, whether it be improving Jordan Pickford, whether it be um, you know developing Moise Keen, but but yes, I could see that happening, um, which is why um, the communication from Denise is is so vacuous because that could have been an opportunity. I mean, Brands has been in post for two years, but that could have been an opportunity today. It's been a really difficult time. Just want to update you on what we're doing. You know, Marcel Brands has full control over all footballing matters, including the academy, the under-23s, et cetera, et cetera. He works very closely with David Unsworth on coaching and developing those young players that we hope to bring into the first team. And if we can't, we will sell them on just like all the other clubs do. Chelsea, United City, Liverpool, you know, with their Ryan Brewsters and their Maitland Nileses and their Phil Foden's and their, you know the, the the kids that Man United have brought through with tremendous success, um, and either on sold or put in the first team. Carlo will bring his professionalism to our first team squad, and he will manage those players tactically. He'll be the man who has the final word on first team signings, development, youth type signings. Those will be broadly the remit of Marcel, and that's quite clear. And I just made that up on the hoof, right? Yep. But but that's clarity have, we don't have clarity because do you know what Denise doesn't have clarity because Ken Wright's an absentee chairman and Mashiri's an absentee owner and to be fair to Denise she's doing her best under very very difficult circumstances because I don't think she's given any direction
0: whatsoever I, I, to, I to, 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 totally agree with you but it's, so it's either well, from my perspective, it's either a, a lack an absence of direction, or, in a sense, an absence of courage. Um, and I say that because
1: courage from whom though? I mean, well, Denise is getting very well paid, uh, and she's not going to necessarily rock the boat. Why should she? You know, I got pelters on Twitter for saying that Snowden and. Darren Griffiths were, you know, sycophantic in their Well, what do you expect? They're employed by Everton. Well, what I expect is professionalism. And if it's shit, say it's shit. And then Darren Griffiths has been sacked for saying Everton was shit when they were 3-0 down. Well, then there'd be uproar and he'd be reinstated. You know, you're there to commentate. You're not there. You know, if truly what people are saying is the role of people who work for the club is to spin a positive agenda, we may as well all move to North Korea, for Christ's sake.
0: But but that's, that's what I'm talking about in terms of courage. It's, yeah. it it's it's the recognition of actually where we are who we are and, and and what our problems are you know let's go back to tony adams for, for a second um he he recovered from the position that he was in when he got to the point when he recognized who he was and what his problems were yeah and you talk to anybody that's been through any form of uh recovery program there is that absolute low point when you can't go any lower, and that's the point when you normally recognize um what your problems are yeah and the, and the moment you recognize what your problems are, then you can start building a recovery and you know the, the quality of the recovery depends upon the individual and the degree of support that that individual gets but yeah. we we are we are firmly still in the denial camp, yeah as to what our problems are and everything else and until we get to the point, and this is what I'm talking about courage, until we have the courage to actually acknowledge where we are, what the issues are, what we can actually do to help ourselves, rather than this fantasy that everything, business as usual, that we're going to spend in the transfer window, that we're, you know, this, that and the other, that the the media love to spin about the club. Um, We're not going to move on.
1: No. I mean, the the, the point is, I, I take your point about the um, recovery and and recognising you're at the bottom and, and recognising that you need to make changes. Um, you can perhaps make it a little bit more general in that we need to get a proper diagnosis of the illness we've got. Um, I mean, we may be addicted to our history. We may be addicted to positive spin. And many fans want it because... As we've said all along, as we said at the beginning of this, Paul, this club means so much to people and everyone's club means a lot to them. But it affects our mood. And people want to hear positive things about their football club. They want to believe they, they, they are gagging for good news and they will pick up on any good story, on any piece of positivity because it will raise, raise their spirits. But we need to go to a proper doctor and we need to get a proper diagnosis We need to have a full 360-degree health check, financially, operationally, strategically, which is why we need to get in an independent directorships onto the board who can look at it properly, look at it in the round, look at it objectively, and make the changes that are needed. Because without that leadership, without that structure, without that discipline, without that focus at board level, where Denise is doing the very best she can, but she has nobody to help her on that board, Literally no one. Sasha, count the beans. And that's just about it. Delivering no strategic value whatsoever. Marcel Brands on the board. Mm, right. How is he going to help her? He's not. Bill Kenwright offering her no help. So Denise is marooned and Denise needs help. And Denise is able, I think, to she, she's ambitious. She wants to grow. She wants to improve herself. And, and good honour, good honour her for her passion, good honour for the messaging that at least she's putting out there. At least she's putting a message out there. It may be slightly off uh, focus, but at least she's trying. But we need proper independent stewardship of the football club by professional people grounded in business, grounded in sports business, winners who can help Ancelotti because without it, Ancelotti won't stay. He won't stay to the end of his contract. His reputation will be so tarnished by delivering a thirteenth place finish for Everton. It, it's just not on.
0: Ah, well, wonderful words, Roger. Very passionate, but very, very accurate assessment of, of, of where where we are. Um, we've been talking for over over an hour, so we probably need to wrap this up. Yeah. One thing, one thought that just came to me as you as as you were saying what you said, is that. Uh, for as much as the club talks about being, you know, and Denise has talked about there being an executive team and, you know, they do, they make collective decisions and stuff. Mm. Actually, there's there's an awful lot of people who are totally exposed and totally out there by themselves. If you follow the logic of, um, of of the argument that you just presented, Denise is, Denise is out there by herself um, without any support. Angelotti's out there by himself and quite clearly Brands is out there by himself so there's an awful lot of people exposed well there's three people exposed but the three most important people are exposed but but there doesn't seem to be a unifying point to which they can go and that is the chairman or is or in the absence of the chairman it is the owner and that's the bit that we don't. Well, there are many bits that we don't have, but that in particular is an element that we do not have. We don't have the clarity of thought, the um, and I you know, I'd ask people to go and look at the Manchester City chairman's statement. We don't have that clarity of vision, the the focus that's required to meet the objectives that are set for us.
1: You're right. You're right. It's it's you know, it's easy to be critical and. They give us plenty of reason to be critical, but I think that criticism certainly is intended to be constructive. And, you know, we've made here four five or six points that could make a material difference to the running of the business and the operating of the football club. And we're asking some really deep and searching questions, which I don't think fans of other clubs would ask. I think they know where they're going. Um, I think they they largely have a plan from Brighton to Liverpool from I mean, maybe maybe Newcastle don't really have a plan at the moment because they don't really have an owner. But, you know, they've been a basket case for some time. Um, the, 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 The problem is what does good look like? None of us have got the slightest idea and our ambitions have been so, so diluted during the Kenwright era that, you know, Goodison Park, which used to be a source of pride, is now arguably the worst stadium in the Premier League. And, um, you know, we've only just woken up to that. So our standards and our sensitivities have been so diluted by decades now of underperformance that we'll be celebrating a seventh place finish. I'd be celebrating it once because it would be progress. Um, But I would like to think that we can do better than that.
0: Um, absolutely absolutely 100% agree with you Um, I hope this hasn't been too depressing for people to listen to Um, it's not intended to be it's intended to be uh, an accurate assessment of where we are and you you, Roger using your experience me using my experience to try and explain what the issues are and what the potential solutions are Um, ultimately Roger you and I are are both fans of the football club you and I have both expressed The reasons for us being fans and how important it is, the football club is to us uh, as fans. I don't want to be spending my time on social media, criticising the club day in, day out, writing articles, doing podcasts. But I feel as if I have to, because the club themselves are not addressing the issues that they should be addressing. And until such a point as they do, I feel it's the duty of all fans to raise these points, not to criticise just the individuals, but to get the club to a more and um, more prosperous um, place in every sense.
1: Yeah, I would echo that, Paul. Really enjoyed our chat. Thank you very much. Let's do it again sometime.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, you're always welcome, as you, as you know. And I, I look forward to your um, podcast returning very soon. It will. Thank you very much, Paul. OK, cheers. Thanks very much for listening, guys. Thank you.